Well, good morning. Uh, would you turn with me in a Bible uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? We're looking today at chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. If you're looking in one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 987. First Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Over 1,800 years ago, an ancient writer described an unusual new community that was rapidly spreading throughout the known world in these words. He said, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as visitors passing through. To them, every foreign land is like their native country, and every land of their birth like a land of strangers. They marry like everyone else and have children. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They obey the laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all people and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. This is from a letter written by a 2nd century writer named Mathetes uh, to a man named Diognetus. And it's a description of the early Christian church. And it's striking because the early Christians didn't fit into any of the existing categories. They weren't defined by an ethnic or national loyalty. They weren't pagans. But they weren't entirely like the Jews either, even though their faith had Jewish roots. And the most intense attempts to suppress and disadvantage them only made their distinctive character more evident. Now today we're looking at the Apostle Paul's instructions to the Christian church about how to be a distinctive community in the world. A community that doesn't conform to the traditional stereotypes and the accepted categories. A community that's shaped above all by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of 1 Thessalonians is about. It gives us a picture of a gospel-centered church. We've been studying it this spring, and we pray that as we look into this book, that we too would be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ into the church that he has called us to be. The last two weeks, we've seen that a gospel-centered church is to be characterized by two things, by holiness and by love. In chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, Paul prays that they would increase and abound in love so that they would be established in holiness. Last week, we looked at how the gospel calls us to holiness. In chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. And today, we see how the gospel calls us to love. As Paul says in verse 9, brotherly love. Now, Paul's assumption here, the idea that's the foundation of this whole passage, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ creates a new family. Every one of us is born into a family. And we're all born into the human race, the human family. 
But the human race, and each one of us individually, has turned away from God and alienated ourselves from Him. But the gospel message is that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human nature and He became our brother. And as our brother, He didn't hold anything back from us. He shared everything He had with us, even to the point of pouring out His life on the cross as a sacrifice, even at that great cost. And on the cross, Jesus took on Himself the death and judgment and alienation from God that we deserved. So that in His resurrection from the dead, He could reconcile us to God the Father. So that we might enjoy life. That we might be welcomed into God's family. And so anyone who turns and believes in Jesus is welcomed into God's family. That's the assumption, that's the the message that underlies this whole text. That the gospel of Jesus Christ creates a new family, brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of God the Father. Nineteen times, in this, just in this short book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes the Christians as brothers, or we might say brothers and sisters. It wasn't a gender-specific term. And that's why Paul uses this phrase, brotherly love, to describe the love of Christians for one another. The gospel of Jesus creates a new family marked by love. For each other. And in this passage, we'll see that that kind of love is expressed in two ways. Gospel shaped love is expressed through generous sharing and through diligent working. So we're going to look at each of these two things in turn. First, how the gospel produces generous sharing, and then how the gospel produces diligent working. So, first, generous sharing. Now, Paul begins by praising the Thessalonian church. He says, You're already generous. You don't need me to teach you this. In fact, you've already been taught by God to love one another. Long ago, the prophet Isaiah spoke of a day when all God's children would be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace in Isaiah 54. And Paul says that in Jesus Christ, that prophecy has been fulfilled. That day has arrived. Now, you might ask, well, what does that mean? How exactly had they been taught by God to love one another? Well, there are at least four different ways that they and we can be taught by God to love. Well, first, we can be taught by God to love simply through Jesus' teaching. Jesus said to his disciples, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my followers if you have love for one another. But second, we can be taught through seeing Jesus' example. John 13 says, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And Jesus demonstrated his love by washing their dirty feet, taking on the role of a lowly servant when nobody else wanted to do it, and ultimately by going to death on a cross, taking the punishment for our sins when no one else could do that. So we can be taught by God to love through hearing Jesus' teaching, through seeing Jesus' example, and third, through receiving Jesus' provision. Jesus promised that after he left, when he went back to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit to produce and cultivate love in our hearts. Paul says God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And finally, we can be taught by God to love through knowing Jesus' Father. You see, the love of Jesus and the love of God the Father can't ultimately be separated. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
From all eternity, God the Father has been pouring out his love on Jesus, his son, without ever ceasing or stopping. And this overflowing love of God the Father has extended even to sinful people like us. Most, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Gave him that we might not perish. That anyone who believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. As Paul said at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Your brothers and sisters loved by God. Loved with an everlasting love. Loved by God even before the foundation of the world. And for the Thessalonian Christians, this understanding and this experience of God's love for them in Jesus Christ and their union with one another as brothers and sisters in God's family, it resulted in an outpouring of generous love for one another. You know, they treated each other like a family. You know, back then they didn't have public buildings like this to meet in, so they met in their homes like a family. They sat around the same table and shared their food like a family. They offered hospitality to one another and when somebody needed a place to stay like a family. They prayed for one another, bringing their thanksgiving and their concerns before their Heavenly Father. And they supported one another when some of them were rejected or, or had tension with their, with their natural families because of their new faith. This was just a normal, everyday part of life in the early Christian church, living as a loving family. You see, for the Thessalonians, uh, this experience of being a Christian was in some ways like the experience of being an immigrant in a foreign land. And just as an example, if you were born and raised in Korea, but you came here to the United States to study or to work, it's common to sometimes feel a little out of place in the majority culture. But if you meet another Korean, you have an immediate connection with them, right? You share something so deep and significant with one another. You share a common homeland and a history that you take pride in. You share a common hope that one day North and South Korea will no longer be two separate countries. You share a common language, and so you can express your hopes and dreams and fears and longings freely. And you share a common love for good Korean food for bulgogi and kimchi and sundubu jjigae, right? And all these things create a common bond between you. And Paul's saying, if, if you're a believer in Jesus, you share something with every other Christian that is so significant and so deep that it unites you, that it creates a deep and everlasting bond between you. In Christ, we share a common Lord, Jesus, our brother, who loved us and gave himself for us in his death on the cross and triumphed over sin and death and his resurrection. In Christ, we share a common history, the history of God's dealings with his people recorded throughout the Bible and even in the history of the church. In Christ, we share a common destiny in the eternal city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem to come. In Christ, we share a common longing that the family of Christians despite our many failures and divisions, would one day be reunited and perfected, worshiping around the throne of Jesus. In Christ, we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. That's what we are. And the Thessalonian church, they got it. 
Now, they weren't perfect. In fact, they had just been following Jesus for probably less than a year when Paul wrote this. You know, they were still figuring some things out. That's why Paul had to write a letter to them to instruct them and guide them and even correct them in a couple of ways. Their church was diverse, including Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, slave and free, citizens and foreigners, male and female. In a group like that, there's always some potential for misunderstanding. But this church became known for their love. And their love didn't stop at the door of their church. It didn't stop at the border of their city. It extended to their whole region. Paul says to all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia, they embraced their role as a crossroads church, and their love overflowed throughout their region. Now, how did they express that love? Well, we don't know all the details, but we do know that some people went out from Thessalonica proclaiming the gospel, sharing their knowledge of Jesus with others throughout their region. Others offered hospitality to believers from other cities who came and needed a place to stay for some time. Surely they prayed for other Christians and other churches. They also gave money so that the gospel could be proclaimed and so that poor Christian believers could be assisted. Just a couple years later, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, and he was boasting about the generosity of the churches in Macedonia, including Thessalonica. He says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave according to their means and even beyond their means of their own accord. Paul points to them and says, look at how generous they were. They weren't extremely wealthy, but they were extremely generous with what they had. Now, what about our church? Do we see this kind of generous sharing, this overflowing love for one another and even for other Christians in our region? You know, what would this look like in our context? Well, it might look like a mom who already takes care of two young kids, making two crockpots worth of food and bringing it to two other moms who just had new babies as well as a med student studying for her boards. Or it might look like two or three families and individuals banding together to provide a place to live for three months for two women in the church who had been homeless and had run out of time and, had, and couldn't stay at the homeless shelter any longer. Or it might look like an older couple taking a day off work to help a young family in the church to paint and clean their home. Or maybe somebody who had been to church on and off throughout the years but never felt that anyone really cared. And then she came here for the first time and was warmly greeted, engaged in conversation, and remembered when she came again in the following weeks. Or maybe it would look like having 30 people over on Easter Sunday after church, intentionally including both core church members, new visitors, and visiting extended family, even though your house was maybe not built to host 30 people all at once. Well, all of those things have happened in this church just in the last couple months. The last one actually happened at two different houses. And so we praise God because he's teaching us to love one another and to share generously. And brothers and sisters, I want to urge you, as Paul did, do this more and more. Let the teaching of Christ, the example of Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the love of God the Father motivate us 
impact our hearts and minds and schedules and, and, and budgets so that we share more and more generously with one another. What would that look like to do that more and more? Well, Pastor Nick said two weeks ago, you can't love people who you don't know. So the first step might be just getting to know some other people well so that you can love them well. That's why we have fellowship hour every Sunday after the service. An opportunity to connect with people and get to know them better so that we can love one another well. And then once you know somebody, pray for them. Pray for this church. Pray for other churches and other ministries too. Pray that they pray for other churches in New Haven that they would grow and be fruitful in their ministry and be faithful to God. You know, it's easy to become suspicious and assume the worst sometimes of other ministries and leaders, especially if we haven't spent the time to get to know them well. But let's be kingdom-minded. Let's do all that we can to promote healthy and truthful and loving relationships throughout the body of Christ. And finally, let's look for ways to be generous with our material wealth. You know, if you're making your budget for the year ahead or if you're thinking about how, do, how am I going to spend my tax refund, ask yourself, how can I be generous? How can I structure my budget so that I give away more than 10%? You know, 10% is a good place to start. That was the law in the Old Testament. Actually, it might have even been more than that. But it's a good place to start, but we don't have to end there. How can we seek to be more and more generous? Or maybe put a line item in your budget for hospitality, for providing and paying for meals for other people, and not just for yourself and your family. You know, if you want to share, if you have time, if you have skills, if you're not sure where to start, look in the bulletin or look on the website. There's a page called Opportunities to Serve. Or talk to your small group leader. Or call the office if you want ideas. Gospel-shaped love is expressed in generous sharing. That's the first point. But the second point is that gospel-shaped love is also expressed through diligent working. This is verse 11 and 12. Uh, The Thessalonian church was so generous in their sharing that it seems that some people were taking advantage of their generosity. Uh, The problem was some people in the Christian community had become disruptive and dependent. They They were meddling in other people's business all the time. And they were mooching off other people's generosity. In particular, they were relying on what was known back then as the patronage system. In Roman society, almost everybody was either a patron or a client. If a patron was a high-status person, somebody who had money and power and connections. And if you were a patron, you try to increase your social status by accumulating as many clients as you could, people who were dependent on you. And the more clients you could support, the more important you would appear. Now, the emperor, of course, was the ultimate patron because everybody in the whole empire depended on him. And everyone looked up to him. Now, if you weren't a patron, if you weren't a high-status person, you try to attach yourself to one, or maybe more than one, so you could get favors from them, to get food or clothing or legal representation or support, a public support for your cause. So you might show up every morning in front of your patron's house 
to greet them as they went off to work and pay them compliments. You wouldn't actually do anything very useful for them. You'd just make them look and feel important. Now the problem was the whole system was fake. Even secular Roman writers made fun of it. If you're the client, you'd appear to give honor to your patron, but really you just want him to give you a free meal every day. And if you were patron, you'd give your clients week old leftovers and then expect them to praise you for your generosity, for giving them something that you'd never eat yourself. And Paul says this whole thing is fake and it's contrary to the gospel. It's a false generosity and it's a false honor. Paul says the gospel is a message about a self-giving savior who generously poured out his life, who humbled himself to die on the cross so that others might live. And when that gospel begins to shape our lives, it produces real generosity and not as real self-giving generosity and not self-seeking pretense of generosity. And at the same time, Paul says the gospel of Christ produces people who work diligently in order to serve and contribute to society instead of only depending and taking from others. Ephesians chapter 2 Paul says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that's what Paul instructs us to do here instead of being disruptive and dependent to be peaceful and diligent in light of the gospel in light of what Christ has done for us. So instead of being disruptive Paul says be peaceful. As he says in verse 11 he says live quietly. Now living quietly was a well understood concept in the ancient world. It meant living peaceably or respectably. Now, one ancient writer described the opposite of living quietly as the man whose life is one long restlessness. He haunts marketplaces, theaters, law courts, council halls and every group and gathering of men. His tongue he lets loose for unmeasured, endless indiscriminate talk bringing chaos and confusion into everything because he has not been trained to that quietness which in season is most excellent Paul says to the Christians through the gospel of Jesus through Jesus death on the cross you've been given peace with God and because you're at peace with God you can be at peace within yourself you don't have to live in one long restlessness going from one event to another and one place to another and one experience to another and one relationship to another and never really being satisfied Jesus said come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest learn from me and you will find rest for your souls and because you're at peace with God you don't have to keep talking all the time do you know people who talking or keep talking 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 and are always talking all the time why do they why do people do that well usually it's because they're insecure or self-absorbed or both but in Christ we are secure we're secure in his love in his acceptance for us and in his word spoken over us so we're free to stop talking and listen and listen as an act of love to our neighbor. One of the reasons Paul gives in verse 12 for why we should live quietly is so that we may walk properly before outsiders. 
Now, as we've seen before, the Thessalonian church was living in a hostile environment. When Paul came to Thessalonica and started preaching about Jesus, some people hired a mob and drove him out of town. Some people were just had it out for the Christians. They were looking for any opportunity to get them. Now, I don't know how you feel. I don't know what environment you're in throughout the week. But if you feel like some part of your life has lived in a hostile environment, if there's somebody who just has it out for you, or if you feel like somebody just has it out for Christians, one of the best ways to commend the faith is not to complain, but to live quietly. Now, that doesn't mean being silent and never talking about Jesus out of fear. No, it means living peaceably, living respectfully, showing through your example the security and confidence and freedom that Christ brings. Paul says, instead of being disruptive, be peaceful. And second, he says, instead of being dependent, be diligent. Mind your own affairs and work with your hands so that you may be dependent on no one. Now, what does it look like to work diligently in light of the gospel? Paul's very practical here, so let me attempt to be very practical as well for our context. Uh, Five groups of people. If you're a student, number one, if you're a student, do your own work and don't plagiarize someone else's. Because when you stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, he won't rebuke you for having B's instead of A's on your transcripts. But he will rebuke you for being dishonest or lazy or idolizing your grades. Two, if you're preparing to graduate, find your deepest identity in Jesus and not in your future job. Now, even if you go to Yale, you will probably not find in your first year out of college your dream job that uses all your skills, has reasonable work hours, pays a decent salary, and makes a difference in the world. I've seen a lot of students graduate. I've been around for a long time. It doesn't happen the first year out of college for most people. We live in a fallen world, and work is often frustrating and incomplete. And even if you think you got it, it probably won't last in the same way very long. Only God's kingdom lasts forever, so make that your first priority. Third, if you have a job, do it well to the glory of God, no matter how prestigious it is or isn't. Paul's advice He says, work with your hands. And that was countercultural advice. Because back then, people looked down on manual laborers. They said, manual labor is fit for only slaves. And so if you're not a slave, don't debase yourself by taking a manual labor job. But Paul says, no. There's dignity in all honest work. Genesis 2, God himself is portrayed as a gardener who plants a garden and gets his hands dirty and forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. And so if you're mopping a floor, or if you're sterilizing hospital equipment, or planting a garden, you're reflecting the image of God, and you're being a channel of his loving provision to the world. And so work in your job with that vision. Fourth, if you're unemployed, be diligent in your search for work. Being unemployed can be lonely and discouraging, and you can only fill out job applications for so many hours every day. So don't go it alone. As long as you're unemployed, find another Christian that you can meet with every week to pray together and for mutual encouragement. Fifth, if you're disabled or if you're retired, consider yourself freed to be in full-time Christian service to others without the constraints of a boss. 
You might never work a paying job again, but God has still created you in Christ and prepared good works in advance for you to do. And that promise doesn't end when you, if you get injured or when you turn 65. So don't waste your retirement or even your disability. Use it for God's glory and for others' good. You see, in a life shaped by the gospel, generous sharing and diligent working aren't opposed to each other. They reinforce each other. The purpose of generous sharing is to enable other people to become diligent workers. God generously poured out his grace on us in Christ so that we might live a life characterized by good works. So if you're generously sharing your resources with others, but not calling them into a life of diligent work, you're not actually loving them. You're only enabling them. Paul says real love is tough love. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he's addressing a similar situation. He goes so far as to say, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, he's not talking about people who are disabled or people who are looking for a job but can't find one, but people who aren't willing to do what it takes to find a job and hold it down. And he says, in that case, don't give them handouts. Don't promote an unhealthy cycle of dependence because that's not truly loving. Don't give free room and board to your 23-year-old son so that he can play video games half the night and sleep until noon every day, right? Or on a bigger scale, this has been the tragic flaw of many well-intentioned attempts to help the poor. Everything from foreign aid and international development to social welfare programs and even some short-term mission trips, right? The intent is to help people But if generous sharing isn't accompanied by a call to diligent working, the effect is simply a vicious cycle of dependence. Now, if you're working in public policy or if you're working in social work or one of these fields, look for ways that you can both continue to be generous and not just become jaded, but also to call people into a life of diligent work, step by step. The goal of generous sharing is to enable people to become diligent workers. And in turn, the goal of working diligently and not being dependent on others, verse 11 and 12, is so that is to enable us to share generously. Right? What Paul's already commended them for in verse 9 and 10, so we can reflect the character of Christ. Paul's not simply commending self-sufficiency. He's not just promoting an ideal of being totally self-sufficient and stopping there. He says, no, don't be dependent on anyone, but instead, work diligently so that you can share with people who are truly in need. As Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, he says, the one who has been stealing must steal no longer, but instead labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with with anyone in need. And in 2 Thessalonians, only three verses after Paul says, if anyone's not willing to work, Let him not eat. He turns to the Christians and he says, As for you, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in doing good. In other words, don't stop being generous because there are some people who have abused it. Don't become so jaded that you simply become a sinner. In some ways, it actually was a good problem that the Thessalonian Christians were so generous that some people were starting to take advantage of it, and Paul had to remind them, call them into diligent work so that they too can one day generously share. 
You see, gospel-shaped love, it doesn't fit the typical stereotypes. It's not just a liberal emphasis on sharing with little responsibility to work, nor is it just a conservative emphasis on work with little responsibility to share. Gospel-shaped love produces an upward spiral of generous sharing and diligent working. So brothers and sisters in Christ, may we be shaped by the gospel of Jesus to experience and live out these realities more and more. Finally, maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. But consider this picture of a gospel-shaped life of love, characterized by generous sharing and diligent working. Is this an attractive picture to you? Does it seem wise and good and admirable to live such a life? Have you perhaps even seen this kind of generosity and diligence and peacefulness in the lives of some Christian that you know? Is there something here that you want, but to be honest, you don't yet have it? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, I urge you, turn to the source of this gospel-shaped life. Turn to the person of Jesus Christ himself. Consider him and turn and believe in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your generous love for us, uh, though you were rich, for our sake you became poor, that we, through your poverty, might become eternally rich. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel message and how it shapes us into people who don't fit the categories of this world. How it shapes us into people characterized by generosity and by diligence. We pray that that would be true more and more. We pray that we would be a church characterized by those things. That people might see your glory even displayed in us. In your name we pray. Amen.